Welcome to Cell Siders, a look at the business and technology of batteries from the cell side of things. Today we're going negative. With a look at the anode technologies of today and tomorrow, we'll also take on the controversy that has been roiling the next-gen battery community and try to address some listener questions along the way. Joining me, as always, is our resident battery boffin, Jordi Sastra. Jordi, how are you doing today? Hey there, Ben. Glad to be joining you one more week here in this podcast. Okay, and our special guest returns, the superlative and pseudonymous Mr. Litmus. Mr. L, wherever you are, how is everything there? It's pretty dark here. <laughs> well, at least at least in the battery world, hopefully things start looking brighter now with, with all of the turmoil surrounding the metal anodes coming up. Okay, we'll get into that. Um, today on Cellsiders, an ode to the anode. Uh, and let's start by framing the issue a little bit. Jordi, why is the anode so important to the lithium-ion battery? And what are the limitations these new technologies are trying to overcome? Well, the anode is one of the fundamental components of the lithium-ion batteries where the ions are stored in the charged state and where they move out of during the discharging. Um, now, currently, lithium-ion technology is based on graphite. We all know these uh, graphite anodes have been dominating the industry for the past 30 years. And... But now there is this trend to move away from graphite to more uh, to higher capacity anodes. The main two contenders here is silicon, the silicon anode, and the lithium metal anode. So, what does the industry expect to be able to do with these new technologies? Where are the areas that anodes can really improve and deliver added value for the end consumers? So, of course, uh, it. it uh, it boils down to capacity, to the energy density of the battery. So if we look at the numbers, uh, graphite anodes uh, can hold uh, a charge of 370 or 300, yeah, around 370 milliamp hours per gram of graphite. If we switch to silicon, this capacity can go up to 3,600 milliamp hours per gram, which is 10 times higher, and a very similar number you get for lithium metal anodes. So, of course, the end consumer would benefit from much larger capacities. Okay, but graphite is the standard today. Um, and why is that? Why haven't we moved to these obviously superior silicon anodes yet? Of course, uh, the, the numbers are very nice on paper, but implementing these technologies is it's quite, quite tricky. So one of the main issues with silicon anodes is uh, the the volume expansion. So when you cycle the battery and discharge it, the volume of the silicon particles changes by about 300%. Uh, this, this is a huge volume change compared to, for example, graphite only changes 10% or less. So what happens when during this volume expansion process? So the particles tend to fracture, they form, they pulverize themselves and they get disconnected from the anode. So, so this leads to rather fast losses, fast charge losses among, upon cycling. There are also problems, uh, but so the battery experts will know that the, the anode is protected by, a, by the SCI, SCI layer, the solid electrolyte interface, which prevents further degradation of the electrolyte. What happens is because of this huge volume expansion, every time that you are cycling the battery, there is new fresh surfaces exposed to the liquid electrolyte and therefore new SCI formation. And this consumes lithium out of the battery and also affects the, the capacity of the battery. So 
by just using pure silicon, what we observe is that the, the, the battery degrades very, very fast. In, in less than 100 cycles, your battery will be completely dead. So just to put into context what uh, Jordi mentioned about volumetric expansion and the formation and reformation of the SEI layer. Uh, so first addressing the volumetric expansion. Now assume your, your battery is uh, or your battery cell is about a centimeter thick and if, if your silicon anode expands by 300 percent what that means in real world scenarios is basically you have to account for a battery cell that is going to expand to almost three to four centimeters from that initial one centimeters and that is just impractical from a design standpoint just imagine every single time you fill gasoline or petrol in your vehicle and you have to accommodate the fuel tank being increased in volume by 2 to 3x. That's, that's just impractical of a design from a battery cell perspective. So that, that, that is basically putting into context what the expansion really means from a battery cell point of view. And then with regards to the SEI layer, yes, that is also an... Uh, also a concern considering you are increasing the number of side reactions that occur every single time that your new layer is formed and those are irreversible reactions leading to degradation of the battery as Jordi mentioned and hence uh, that's that's also something that the industry needs to address if you are trying to achieve these high capacity anodes or high capacity chemistries and i think it's just important to emphasize the relationship between cycle life and energy density. Of course, if your silicon anode is incredibly energy dense in the first cycle, but loses capacity so rapidly after cycle 50 or 60, uh, the main advantage of using silicon is now gone because the capacity of the battery has been degraded so much. So it's really important that you have both that high nominal capacity, but also good cycle life and that's the that's the circle that all of these silicon technology companies are trying to square um however graphite has its own problems um, and one of the problems that the battery industry faces is that the supply of natural battery grade graphite is actually quite limited it's one of the most limited components of a modern battery cell now, we saw Volkswagen in their power day indicate that they were planning to move to synthetic graphite. And we actually had a listener question on this. Dan, who's at MonkeyManDan81, he asked about the differences between synthetic and natural graphite. So what are the benefits and drawbacks of using synthetic over natural graphite? Let's just explain basically what means natural and synthetic graphite. This is, I mean, the name already tells a lot. So nat natural graphite is basically mined out of the earth crust. Um, it's uh, carbon that has graphitized over time by pressure and temperature under earth. Uh, synthetic graphite is produced by, it's produced from byproducts of the fuel, uh, fossil fuel industry, uh, normally coke. Uh, which is then processed into graphite by heating it at temperatures about 3000 degrees for long times. So, I mean, let, let's, let's just see the different properties of the, of the, and different processing and, and what advantages one has over the other. From a performance point of view, 
it's normally considered that synthetic graphite has better performance, especially in terms of li cycle life, because uh, during the processing of the synthetic graphite, you can well the company can control much better the morphology and the properties of the particles of particles, therefore leading to higher, uh, well more optimized surfaces and less degradation over time. But on the other side, production costs are very high. It's a, a very energy demanding process, as we mentioned, 3000 degrees for hours, even days. Um, and normally it's produced in China, which means uh, coal fired energy, which emits lots of pollution and a lot of CO2, which so at the end is a very dirty process. Uh, just to interrupt you over there, I think uh, US, US is the largest uh producer of synthetic graphite is it okay so sorry they cut me off <laughs> okay um just a question about the general prevalence of synthetic versus natural graphite in the industry today do either of you have a sense of which one is more common uh, synthetic graphite has a 60 percent market share i think approximately yeah. nowadays yes. it, it used to be 50 50 till about three or four years ago and uh, now I think with with the advent of higher chem uh, like better chemistries on the cathode, so like NCA, NMC eight one one, I think uh, the preference is now to switch towards more of uh, synthetic graphite because of its higher quality. Okay, and as a byproduct of the fossil fuel industry, on the one hand. It does make sense to use those byproducts because, unfortunately, fossil fuels are a reality that we have to deal with. So we might as well get the benefits um, and use all of the resources that we get from that while we still have to use fossil fuels. But it's not necessarily something that we can count on in the decades ahead, um, which I think presents a good time to move to talking about silicon in a little more detail. Um, and really, for a long time, the future of the anode has seemed to be uh, set to be dominated by silicon. And the business of batteries has certainly put big bets on it as well. Sila Nano, a silicon anode material manufacturer, recently raised $600 million to bring 100 gigawatt hours worth of production online by 2024. Uh, and recently, Enovix, a silicon-based battery maker, signed a $400 million SPAC deal to build batteries aimed at consumer electronics. I want to ask the two of you, what do you think the future of silicon on the anode looks like? But maybe let, let's look first at what each company is, is doing. Uh, because there, there are, so we already mentioned before the problems that the silicon anodes have. And what I see is that there are different strategies to solve this, this problem. And I think it depends on how good these solutions can be implemented will determine the success of silicon in the future. We saw during battery day that Tesla, what 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 is intending to do, what what is planning to do is basically using a polymer electro kind of a polymer electrolyte to bind the particles together and prevent this pulverization or fracture of the particles. This is a Tesla approach. Nano, Sila uh, Nano for, on the other side, what they're trying is trying to engineer the particle microstructure to avoid that the that the expansion goes on well that basically that the, the particle doesn't expand towards the outside or instead they, they they use kind of a hollow structure that accommodates this volume expansion in the interior of the particle and completely different approach is that of enovix what they do is uh, 
basically very simple. They apply a lot of pressure to the stack. They cut, they, they produce electrodes with very th in a thin shape of around three millimeters. They stack them together and they apply pressure of about 100 atmosphere. So if we we remember what quantum square was saying they say they say something about three atmospheres in case of n of bigs they're going to 100 atmospheres so a lot of pressure to keep the the silicon together and preventing this pulverization process good and if i recall correctly three atmospheres is about as much pressure as there is in a can of coca-cola um, so 100 atmospheres is obviously a substantial amount of pressure Mr. L, what do you see the future of silicon on the anode looking like? Thanks for that, Ben. I think in, in terms of the future of silicon in the battery industry as a whole, I feel that um, it, is, it is worthy being tapped into as a resource for increasing battery capacity. Um, of course, in, if, you, if you use 100% pure silicon, you, you get a much larger increase in your capacity of the cell but you're also uh, coming into some real world practical difficulties of of utilizing that so in, in that way i think blending it with graphite is is probably the best way to proceed and uh, taking the best of both worlds where you know graphite offers that kind of physical stability and silicon offers you just to eke out that extra bit of performance uh, associated with, with with just having more capacity so i think it's it's here to stay uh, to what extent is is that needs to be figured out because from what i understand it it seems that the industry as a whole is is accommodating silicon in some form or the other and they're currently at sample b or sample c stage testing in the automotive field so in in that context i feel it's here to stay. Um, to what extent it continues and develops is, uh, is 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 going to be beneficial to the industry overall as a whole. Say a little bit more about what that means, sample B versus sample C versus sample D. What does that classification scheme mean? Sure. So in the automotive sector, every uh, major OEM has to go through uh, a certain set of qualifications and testings before the product or the component can be released for mass uh, manufactured vehicles. Um, in today's automotive industry, that's fairly standard as a process. So you, you go through first initial validation in the lab itself where you subject any particular component to the kind of real world scenario testings that it would it would go through. Now, just to take an example, you would probably get, uh, say for example, if you have a catalytic converter, you, you would subject it to certain emission testings, you would, uh, you would subject it to certain heat mode testing, certain uh, mechanical testings and see if it survives in the lab scale. And that is basically on a few initial samples that come out. Then you go, then once that has been verified, you go through to your sample B testing where your intent mass manufacturing process from the pilot line that is tested out with the same conditions. Uh, it doesn't go into vehicles just yet. Then comes your sample C, which is basically the samples coming out from your first factory line, uh, from the first uh, factory uh, products. And those 
go through a simultaneous test of lab scale plus real world fitted into um, concept cars or testing vehicles, so to speak. And then finally, you have your sample D testing, which is basically a copy exact of the sample C testing. And after sample D testing is completed and verified, you uh, everything is locked in place. Nothing can be changed. And if everything needs to be changed, it's a five year uh, cycle of getting everything verified right from sample A, B, C through D. Particularly for a company like Sila Nano that is targeting automotive, bringing their manufacturing online by 2024 uh, is not just in some way a reflection of how complex their process is to set up, but how time-consuming the qualification process is for automotive. I mean, that's true for any up-and-coming uh, automotive OEM supplier, whether it be Scylla, whether it be SES, whether it be QuantumScape. It, it's going to be true regardless of... It, it's agnostic to the company itself. It's, it's, it's the process needs to be followed. There's a reason behind that process being there. And, you know, to be honest, I wouldn't... Uh, I wouldn't necessarily rule out that process changing uh, in order in light of rolling out a technology sooner, but it it is what it is. Uh, if if you don't go through te- those testings, even a zero point zero one percent chance of with a zero point zero one percent chance of failure, you're looking at billions of dollars worth of recall and bad press ra- rather than going through the testing. As LG Energy Solution has discovered uh, to its chagrin in the recent months. Of course, the big news in the battery world over the last few months has been all about lithium metal anodes. Uh, companies like Solid Power, QuantumScape, Qberg, and others have their sights set on eliminating anode host materials like graphite or silicon entirely, potentially increasing energy density and perhaps simplifying manufacturing. But a recent paper in Nature Energy by David T. Boyle and colleagues seemed to throw cold water on those plans. Jordi, there's a lot of controversy surrounding this paper. What's going on? Yes, when uh, this has been the main debate in battery Twitter over the past week. So, okay, let's let's first talk about the paper. The paper has was published actually two weeks ago in Nature Energy. If uh, you know the academic publishing. Nature Energy is probably the most fancy journal for energy-related research. So it's a, it's a, it should be an impactful paper. So it's from moreover from the group of E2E at Stanford University. It's a very well-known group with very good research. The title of this of the paper is basically uh, says that uh, the lithium is corrosion of lithium metal anodes during calendar aging. And its microscopic origin. So, what does this calendar aging means? This is was the main controversy. Calendar aging is how fast the the or how the battery degrades by just letting it sit idle. It's not so we are we always hear about cycle life. Cycle life is how how it's the the battery degrading over upon cycling. In this case, is how is the battery degrading by just letting it sit. So the paper claims that lithium metal anodes have a poor calendar life that has non, not been investigated so much by other group, by other research groups. Uh, they, moreover, they in their in their summary or their abstract, they claim something that has been quite controversial. As they say that lithium metal loss, losses 
about uh, between two and three percent of its capacity after only 24 hours of just letting it sit idle. Uh, they say that this is regardless of the electrolyte that is used. Yeah. Um, so this sparked a lot of controversy uh, for a number of reasons, but I think probably the most important reason is that there had been reports from a number of private companies, Solid Power, QuantumScape, Qberg, among others, who were all developing lithium metal anode batteries, and none of whom had reported any problems like the ones reported in this paper. Um, and Steve Levine from The Mobilist actually did the, the legwork of running to ground some of the responses from those different companies. And all of the companies said, we haven't observed anything like what this paper is reporting. So the big question then is, where is this discrepancy coming from between this lab research presented in Nature and the public data published by these private battery companies. So I think we, we have to understand first that this is a very fundamental study. It's in non-optimized electrolytes, non-optimized cell architecture, non-optimized uh, lithium metal anodes. There are so many parameters that can influence this, this uh, calendar aging that, of course, all these big companies have been doing intense research. They have developed a lot of resources and they have already optimized their systems to prevent this. But here, I mean, it's a very interesting result from an academic perspective. They just claim, well, there is a corrosion problem with the lithium metal node in liquid electrolytes, not solid state electrolytes, liquid electrolytes. And we must, must look as, as researchers, we must look at this problem and try to understand. This is fine. The problem is, there were some people that tried to extrapolate this finding to the industry. And I would say this was the main issue or what sparked so much controversy. Also, there was even some disagreement among researchers. There was a, a tweet by Professor Shirley Meng from UC San Diego. She said that she believed that this was not the right protocol to test calendar aging or calendar life. And of course, this led to different arguments going back and forth from different researchers and heat up a bit the discussion. Again, this, this goes back to the point that we were discussing, uh, you know, probably in our first uh, episode itself, where the lack of standardization is what really hurts the industry as a whole, rather than everyone having their own opinions. If, if you standardize everything and, and put it on the same level playing field, you you pretty much rule out any of these kinds of discrepancies uh, coming up. Yeah. So, for example, if if someone uses a certain protocol for testing, uh, it, you 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 naturally tend to have discrepancies associated with conclusions that you can draw. You someone can test a battery cell at a rate of c by ten, c by ten, and run it for years and years and claim that you know you have. Uh, great cycle life but what about your charge discharge rate uh, what about your calendar life no one no one really mentions that it's, it's all basically isolated pockets of information that they choose to highlight rather and which which is not uh, which which does not tend to progress the industry as a whole uh, cohesively rather than in, in individual pockets itself I agree totally with you, Mr. L. Uh, I think this, and this is an ongoing discussion in the battery communities, we need standards. Uh, every company, every research group is doing their own measurements in different ways, and we cannot compare performances. 
but it's also hard to standardize battery. So if we look at the solar industry there, it's very easy. They just report efficiencies. It's just a single value tested under certain conditions, but batteries can be, there are different applications. There are different uh, environments where they operate, etc., etc. So it's very hard to define a standard for testing. And I think the, the community needs to work on this further and try to come up with a set of standards. We, we, I, I think there won't, won't be a, a single standard, but there might be a set of standards that the industry and the research or the academia can stick to and make everything more comparable. Absolutely, absolutely. I agree with that. I mean, uh, all that needs to happen is, is primarily subject the same cell to the same type of tests, whether it be charge-discharge tests, whether it be cycling life tests, whether it be measurement of cell potential tests. Just keep the test standardized so everyone can report all the results at the same time. And rather than, you know, showcasing a chemistry that is going to be a silver bullet just by uh, solving the cycle life problem, that's that's not the way to proceed. You need to address all of the fundamental issues that exist in the batteries and report all of those results at the same time rather than just looking at it in isolation. Is there is there a disconnect between battery research in academia and battery development in the commercial battery industry? I, I have the feeling, yeah, of course, there's a, a disconnect. As you mentioned, uh, industry is trying to make the best products, trying to bring it to market. And, and academia is at the end looking at rather fundamental stuff that no, not always has a, a real application, right? And moreover, the resources available for academia are much, much less than what the industry has available. So academia has at the end of the day to focus on very niche fundamental discussion or very niche um, problems and try to just develop. This, of course, cannot maybe in not in a short term, but in a, in a mid long term, this could always uh, evolve into something industrially relevant. But most of the time, it just stays in academia. Uh, still, I would say it would be very positive to have more synergies. There are many problems, uh, scientific problems that the industry cannot tackle, cannot cannot devote resources to investigate. And if industry could communicate better, or both parties could communicate better, there would be a lot of problems that could be probably investigated from academic side and would benefit industry. Interesting. Could the answer be something like an industry-funded uh, grant program or research institute that provides funding for these industry-led questions? Is there anything like that that exists today? I believe, I mean, we have the big example of Jeff Dan's lab in, in Dalhuis University. He receives a, lot of funding, receives a lot of funding from Tesla. And like him, there are many other groups around the world that are receiving funding from industry partners. And if we also think about the national labs in the US, also in Europe, we have a lot of research labs which are more industry focused and they try to cooperate with industrial partners to develop certain applications. Still, there is a lot of research uh, in academic institutions that is going towards industry. So coming back to the original question itself, uh, I feel... Uh, researchers are are kind of incentivized to look at fundamental properties, um, to look at what is it that affects 
the cell chemistry and the cell performance and in that regards i feel uh, researchers should be motivated to look at the more fundamental level of course i think anything that comes as a byproduct uh, in terms of a discovery that could potentially have consequences in the industry itself that should not be overlooked so in in that regards i feel uh research in academia has a vital role to play in identifying some of the fundamental problems associated with the batteries um industry obviously has a more of an incentive to uh create intellectual property create uh trade secrets for commercialization of battery cell chemistries and i i feel that you know both while well, both sides of the coin are necessary um for addressing the challenges i think the playground and the tools should be at a level playing field in terms of the kind of tests and rigorousness that needs to go through if someone claims that a certain problem is a fundamental problem um rather than haphazardly uh, just just claiming that this is this is a problem for the industry as a whole it cannot survive and then causing just just you know unnecessary panic uh, and unnecessary discussions based off of a, just a false assumption i i agree with you mr l and i think this this paper that we were discussing it's a very good example this is a fundamental problem it's lithium metal corrosion it's a very fundamental issue of course industry has solved this but it's very interesting for academia to study this this process or this corrosion issue because maybe they come up with some solution that makes everything better also for industry so as you mentioned like the role of academia would, should be focused on more specific fundamental issues whereas industry just devotes all the resources to make this fundamental to bring this fundamental knowledge into products that can be commercialized and they have an impact on society as we've seen recently in biotech for example uh, the invention of the crispr cas9 gene editing technique was an outgrowth of incredibly obscure basic research that has wound up having really profound impact not just in academia but in industry increasingly as well so you never know what's going to be under those stones when you turn them over and and it has to be somebody's job to turn them over so the lithium metal anode is exciting for a lot of reasons one of the most interesting might be the approach of an anode free design I think QuantumScape is the most prominent company using this approach uh, of manufacturing the battery without any anode at all, instead forming the lithium metal anode in situ when the completed battery cell is charged for the first time. Mr. Litmus, do you think the anode is an endangered species? Is this something that you see long-term going away completely? That's a great question, Ben. I think uh, in, in this regards, I feel that the anode technology is not something that is going to be easily replaced it may get replaced in 20 30 years time but that's that's a very long time horizon for a technology to exist um in so in that regards i feel any of these anode technologies that come up they're they're here to stay uh quantumscape again you just have to remember that it is still fairly early on to comment on if it can is swallow up an entire industry uh, as a whole so you you have to take into account that uh, some of these anode technologies will be here to 
stay for the long run. It, of course, their lifetime can be 20, 30 years, uh, but they're here to stay. I don't foresee any of the battery technologies that show some promise of commercialization being uh, just cast away at their developmental stages right now. Okay, that's all the time we have for this week. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and share on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have questions you'd like our battery experts to answer, please tweet at us. Our handle is at Cellsiders. That's C-E-L-L-S-I-D-E-R-S. Our theme music was composed by Seneca. He can be had on Twitter under at music underscore Seneca. Thanks very much for listening, and we'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.